Hey, thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive review for me in iTunes. You can also check out my all-too-rarely-updated website at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Konnichiwa, and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. Today we are in Japan with the heartbreaking Sancho the Bailiff from 1954. Now, this is a fictional story involving zero historical figures. So, similar to my episode on Excalibur... I want to largely use this episode to discuss the history of Japan up to this point in our timeline and to help bridge the gap from last week when we ended in the 8th century with China's Empress Wu. The 8th century saw continued expansion by the Muslims into North Africa and the Iberian Peninsula, that is modern Spain and Portugal. Around 731, English monk Bede the Venerable completes the ecclesiastical history of the English people. The following year, Charles Martel of France defeated the Muslims at the Battle of Tours, halting their expansion and solidifying both Martel's power within France and France's power within Europe. If you don't know the name Charles Martel, you have likely still heard of his grandson, Charlemagne. I was almost able to throw in a full episode on Charlemagne as the musical Pippin is a fictionalized account of his son, but there's never actually been a movie version of it. The closest to it is a recording of a stage production from 1981, but it doesn't seem to be available online, and I'm not sure if I would count it as eligible for this anyway. Why have you heard the name Charlemagne? Which is just French for Charles the Great. Charlemagne. He was the first emperor of the so-called Holy Roman Empire. The short version is that it was an attempt to call back to the glory of Rome, The western half of the empire had fallen three centuries earlier, and the eastern half had evolved into the Byzantine Empire. As Martel's family replaced the descendants of Clovis as the rulers of France, they did so with the backing of the papacy in Rome. So on Christmas Day in the year 800, Charlemagne was crowned the first emperor of this new Holy Roman Empire, with control over parts of what are now Germany, Italy, and France. And if my audio guide was correct, I stood on the spot where he was crowned. In St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, there's a purple circle on the ground, supposedly marking the location where Charlemagne stood when he was crowned. And we can start to begin to see how, in the centuries following the fall of Rome, the rest of Europe is going from tribes of barbarians to regions of more organized political structure. Around the same time as Charlemagne, in northern Europe, the Viking Age begins, with Norsemen from Scandinavia stretching out to trade, raid, conquer, and colonize. The Vikings carry us into the 9th century. Charlemagne dies in 814. In 825, the world's largest Buddhist temple is built in what is now Indonesia. This is Borobudur. It's worth a quick Google image search. Very impressive. Its square base is over 100 meters long on each side, and it is around 100 feet tall. It stands today 300 miles west of Jakarta, Indonesia's capital of nearly 10 million people. If you want to look it up, check the show notes, and I've written it in there so that you can not have to decipher how to spell it from my pronunciation. Back to the Vikings. A little later, one of their settlements on the coast of Ireland will become the city of Dublin. And the Vikings butt heads with the English, who were led by the man often considered their first official historical king, Alfred the Great. Alfred signed a treaty with the Vikings establishing Dane law in the north of England a Scandinavian-controlled region that further influenced the developing culture and language of England. Alfred the Great died in 899, and we can jump into the 10th century. Again, remember that the 10th century begins with the year 901. 
The Viking ruler Rollo of the Norsemen established the Normandy region in northwestern France. And there's a connection here that I hadn't really thought about before. Norse, Normandy, connected as well through the Vikings to Norway. The Normans will become very important for us here in another century, and we'll discuss them in great detail in a couple weeks. In 927, the Kingdom of England became an official political entity. Its king went from King of the Anglo-Saxons to King of the English. This was also around the height of Muslim Spain. The Caliphate of Cordoba lasted from 929 to 1031 before descending into civil war. Icelandic explorer Leif Erikson was born in 970. At the turn of the 11th century, he would help establish the first European settlements in North America. In 979, China is reunited under the Song Dynasty. The so-called Four Great Inventions of China were either developed or improved upon during the Song Dynasty. These inventions are papermaking, which we've mentioned in a past episode, printing, gunpowder, and the compass. It was around this time that the Chinese realized the gunpowder they had been using for their fireworks for a couple centuries could also be used as a powerful weapon. Before guns or cannons, they initially used the powder to turn arrows into mini-rockets called fire arrows. It was during the Song Dynasty that magnetic compasses were first used for navigation. Paper, again, was the oldest of these Chinese inventions, but the Song Dynasty was the first government in the world to issue paper currency. And in printing, the Chinese here were using movable type 400 years before Gutenberg would invent the printing press. Basically, China developed the idea of using reusable and rearrangeable blocks of text for transferring ink to page. Gutenberg developed a way to print those pages way faster. The Song Dynasty overlaps with the Heian period in Japan, which is when our story today is set. But let me rewind to see what's been happening in Japan this whole time. You may have heard of the Ring of Fire, a tectonically active border around most of the Pacific Ocean. Going counterclockwise, you can draw a relatively smooth perimeter around it from the Andes Mountains in South America, up along Central America and Mexico into California, and the Cascade Mountains of the Pacific Northwest. Turn west along the bottom of Alaska and follow that over to Asia, down across Japan, the East Indies, and down around over to New Zealand. What's the commonality? Earthquakes, mountains, and volcanoes. Japan actually consists of over 6,000 islands, more than 400 of which are inhabited. They run for nearly 2,000 miles, roughly north-northeast, just off the coast of Asia. Wikipedia claims Japan has 40 active volcanoes and roughly 1,000 earthquakes each year. Humans seem to have inhabited the islands at least 40,000 years ago. Similar to what we saw with the British Isles, lower Ice Age sea levels made it possible to just walk across to Japan from the mainland. And you may remember from our episode on Hero, there's a legend that a sorcerer sent by the Chinese emperor to look for the elixir of life never returned and helped colonize Japan. Japan first appeared in Chinese written records in the 1st century CE. And again, similar to Britain, Japan just lacks the long written historical record of, say, a China or Egypt. Around this time, the Japanese were beginning to rely more and more on agriculture, and they imported bronze and iron tools and weapons from China and Korea. During the 3rd through 6th centuries CE, Japan slowly went from scattered kingdoms to one unified kingdom ruled by the emperor. There were emperors before this time, but again, the land was far less unified. It's worth noting here that Japan is home to the oldest continuous hereditary monarch in the world. Their current emperor can trace his family back to rulers in the 7th century, though Japanese emperors rarely seem to have held much power. The current emperor officially has no political power and has a similar role to Queen Elizabeth in England as the symbolic head of state. Anyway, the 6th century also brought Buddhism to Japan to go with its native religion of Shintoism. 
And unlike what we've seen elsewhere, there doesn't really seem to have been a big conflict between adherents to the different faiths. In fact, they were largely kind of assimilated into a single faith. I don't really understand Shinto, but basically it seems to be a collection of rituals focusing on reverence to to ancestors and things of the past. Japan has also long taken pride in being the place in the world where the sun first shines each day. When you take out the as-yet-unknown Americas and just look at Asia, Europe, and Africa, it hits East Asia first. Indeed, the Japanese word for Japan means the origin of the sun, and we often hear it as the land of the rising sun. This is also why the Japanese flag is a simple red circle. It's the sun. In 794, the capital of Japan was moved to what is now Kyoto. At the time, the city was known as Heian-kyo, and this period of Japan from 794 to 1185 was known as the Heian period. This, again, is the period of our movie today. Somewhat specifically, sometime in the 11th century, according to several reviews, the film itself doesn't say. The film, again, doesn't have any historical characters, so I'll try to be brief and then discuss the historical notes for a few elements that are relevant to the movie. So the opening of the film tells us Japan is still in the Dark Ages, when mankind was not yet human, definitely setting the tone for the story to follow. We see a mother and her two young children traveling through the wilderness. A female servant is with them as well, but she doesn't play much of a role in the story. We then cut to a flashback where a local governor is being ousted for refusing to send his people off to fight in a war he considers senseless. Not knowing what will happen to him, he sends his wife and children away to live with his brother. So, back to the family walking through the woods in the movie's present, this is them returning to find him after seven years. But they are captured by bandits, and the kids are sold into slavery, and their mother is carried off elsewhere. We'll get back to her, but the kids are the main characters in this film. The slavers have trouble selling such young kids. They're about 13 and 8 at the time, especially as they were raised in nobility and are rather soft. Finally, it is suggested they take the kids to Tongo province, where Sancho the bailiff is the richest man around and will probably buy them. And you might be thinking, oh, perfect, that's the name of the movie. He'll either help them out or be the main focus of the rest of the movie or something like that. Nope, he's just the guy who runs the property where the kids work as slaves. We do see a fair amount of him, but it really makes no sense that the movie is named after him. It'd be like if the first Star Wars movie had been titled Grand Moff Tarkin. Anyway, Sancho's son does pity the kids, as they are by far the youngest on the estate. Realizing that their noble names, which they've been reluctant to even say, will give them away, he gives them commoner names to go by. But I'm warning you, don't start expecting happy from this movie. We cut to 10 years later, with the kids, now young adults, still working for Sancho the Bailiff as slaves. And just to make it easier to refer to them, I'll tell you that the boy's real name is Zushio, and his sister is Anju. Zushio, though still a slave, is now a trusted and respected member of the labor force on this site. We even see him punishing a would-be escapee by branding him on the forehead. Anju chastises him for forgetting who they really are and wants to escape, but Zushio says she's dreaming and they just need to make the best life for themselves they can't hear. Anju gains new hope when she hears a song being sung by a new slave. The song is the lament of a mother over her lost children, named Anju and Zushio. Anju is certain that the song must have originated with their mother. The new slave says she's from Sado, and that the song is supposedly from a courtesan there. Zushio still tells Anju she's just getting her hopes up. When one of their fellow slaves is growing fatally ill, Zushio is ordered to, quote, go dump her in the mountains, unquote. I told you this movie was brutal. Now, going to the mountains does mean leaving the compound, though they have a guard accompanying them. During this excursion, Zushio does have a change of heart and tells his sister that he does now want to escape. 
but she selflessly decides that for Zushio to get away, she needs to go and distract the guard and cover for him before they realize he's run off. And Zushio agrees. I think his plan was, if he can just get out and find someone who believes he's noble-born, he can come back and openly claim his sister. He runs off and is able to hide from Sancho's men at a Buddhist monastery. His sister, however, in the chaos over Zushio's disappearance, when they leave the gate open, she wanders out of the complex and drowns herself in a pond to avoid being tortured by Sancho's men to give him up. Zushio, looking very much like a peasant, struggles to convince anyone to talk to him. Fortunately, he carries with him a small idol from his father that is recognized by the so-called chief advisor who grants him an audience. This man tells Zushio that his father just died a year ago, but he names Zushio governor of Tongo as he's noble-born and the post just happens to be vacant. I'm a little confused here as to the exact role the chief advisor holds in the government, but I believe it's meant that he's the chief advisor to the emperor, which at this time in Japan may have meant he effectively ruled the country in the emperor's name. And I can't say who the emperor was at this time because, again, we don't exactly know when this story takes place. As the new governor of Tongo, Zushu has only one priority, outlaw slavery and destroy Sancho. He's quickly told that this lies well outside of his authority. But he decides he doesn't care and does it anyway. He meets with Sancho, who doesn't recognize him at first in his nice clothes, and ultimately has him arrested and sets his slaves free. When Zushio then learns his sister is dead, he resigns his post and doesn't stick around for the aftermath of the mess he caused. He now has only one hope remaining, to find his mother on the island of Sado. After a few dead ends and being told she's dead, he finds a blind old woman on the beach. It is his mother. At first, she refuses to believe. She can't afford to hope anymore and assumes it's someone playing a cruel joke on her. But Zushio still has the idol from his father and his mother recognizes it by touch. She embraces her son, who has to inform her that his father and sister are dead, but at least they found each other. And that's the end. I do like to include movies like this on the list. It doesn't depict a specific historical event, but does give us a sense of a time and a place and a look at the lives of people who aren't written about in the history books. The idol, which twice played an important role in Zushio proving who he was, was of the Buddhist goddess of mercy. Mercy was a theme throughout the film. And the main lesson Zushio's father left him with as a child was that a man without mercy is no man at all. Finally, slavery in Japan was a formal practice for over a thousand years before being outlawed in the year 1590. Elsewhere in the world around this time, the Chola dynasty in southern India was at its height. They had a strong navy giving them influence, stretching into parts of what is now Thailand, Malaysia, and Indonesia. With 13 critics weighing in, Sancho the Bailiff maintains 100% on Rotten Tomatoes with 90% of audience members agreeing. It's dark, but powerfully emotional. I do recommend it, and you can rent it on Amazon. Next week, we'll stay in the 11th century and travel the world from England to Persia with a young man hoping to learn the advanced healing arts of the Islamic Golden Age. Sir Bing Kingsley stars as his wise teacher in 2013's The Physician. The Physician.